0: Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, the training partner that demystifies fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. On the show this week, we've got Fiona Edwards-Murphy.
1: I am Dr. Fiona Edwards-Murphy and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Apis
0: Protect sharing her story on Apis Protect, who are an Irish tech startup using unique, innovative bee monitoring technology to help beekeepers prevent losses and increase productivity in their hives. In this chat, we get into Fiona's channeling of her technology expertise into a passion for helping beekeepers, her transition from academia into the life of a startup founder, raising Apis Protect's first round, and building an SME and corporate customer base across Europe and the US. All right here on Money Never sleeps. sleeps, So Fiona, listen, done a lot of digging into your backstory to figure out where you came from, but do you want to do us the honors and tell us how you got to this point?
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah. So how I ended up working in B technology, which I guess is kind of an unusual place to end up in the first place, no matter where you start out from, is I came at it from the engineering side. So my background is in electronic engineering. I studied electrical and electronic engineering at the University of Cork, UCC, and got involved there pretty early on in my undergrad with a research group called the uh, Embedded Systems Group. So basically at that stage, they were the group researching an area that was then called wireless sensor networks. Then it got called uh, a few different names. And now for the last four or five years, it seems to have settled on the Internet of Things. So really just fell in love with basically what I saw as using sensors in the real world to achieve meaningful things, which I found particularly interesting because I wasn't too gone on the academic side of engineering as in, you know, spending your entire life looking at one particular circuit and trying to improve it and improve it and never take it out into the real world and achieve something with it. So that's what I really loved about IoT is the fact that you're using all of these concepts that that you've learned about and that you know about to actually use those sensors, get them out into the real world, tell people information that they don't know already and get meaningful results. So uh, that's what really made me fall in love with the area of IoT. And then how I (laughs) ended up then mashing that together with bees was I was looking for a topic for a PhD just as I was finishing up my undergrad. And I came from a rural background, you know, grew up in North Cork, so a fairly agricultural area and had been surrounded by farming and a little bit of beekeeping, but definitely wasn't. I wasn't a beekeeper. I wasn't a very avid beekeeper at that stage. But it was one of my, who ended up becoming my PhD supervisors, but was actually the head of the embedded systems group. His own father was a beekeeper and he was telling me a story about how the very first time he'd used sensors in his entire life was in the winter in Romania where he grew up where his dad was a farmer uh, or a bee farmer and they used to go out in the middle of winter with stethoscopes and listen to all of the beehives and try to work out which ones are alive and which ones are dead yeah because you can't open a beehive during the winter because it's so cold you'll kill them pretty quickly so he said you know As I've been working in sensors throughout my entire life, I've always been thinking about, you know, can sensors be used for detecting things like which hives are alive during the winter? And uh, I was like, that's amazing. Can I, can I just do that for my PhD? (laughs) So I went off and secured, secured funding to basically just go, can I just put a pile of sensors, please, into beehives and see what happens? (laughs) And And so I was lucky enough to get, so here we have a group called the Irish Research Council where you can apply as a student or a prospective phd student for funding for a project that you define okay. and it's pretty competitive you know i was very very excited and very happy to get it basically I said, I went to the Irish Research Council. I said, look, I want to do this. I have this idea. You know, I think I'm a good candidate for a PhD and I want to do it on this. And there is no existing project in the university on this topic. So can I please have some money to go do it myself? And I managed to get it, which was, which was excellent. So uh, from day one, I knew exactly what I was setting out to do in my PhD. And it was sensors in beehives, sensors and signal processing in beehives.
0: Okay. It's crazy. My kids got this bees book right, which tells a story about a bee leaving the hive and going out for a fly, as bees do, right, and dropping into a few flowers and doing the pollination thing, and then coming back and doing this little dance inside the beehive. And the shape of the tracks left behind the bee indicate the path to get to the, to the flowers, right? That was just, and it's a true story, apparently, not about that specific bee, but about <laughs> the science of bees And I just found that fascinating. Was any of that kind of, you know, the science of bees really, did any of that fuel your interest in this?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was one of those things, you know, I just love the idea of working with bees and then I started to actually learn about bees as I started my work and uh, just the amazing things that they do. There are, you know, as an engineer, they're the most interesting system I've ever observed, you know, that like that you're talking there about the waggle dance. So uh, the bees actually, they come back and they dance in a circle at like, well, kind of a figure eight squished into a circle. And the frequency that they wiggle their, their bums at tells you how far the flower is from the beehive. And then the angle that they do the eight at tells the bees what direction they need to go when they leave from the beehive. So they're, you know, doing, you know, a circular coordinate system, you know, and they've been doing yeah. that for millions of years, millions of years before we even thought of that, that, you know, the bees are out there doing it or how when uh, the, the queen is coming to the end of her life inside the beehive. So obviously there's only one queen in the beehive. The hive starts to raise new potential queens. So there's lots of little queen eggs and they start to make this really crazy noise. So we all know what the sound of a bee is. It's like buzz, 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 buzz. buzz. But they start to do this thing. And you should definitely look it up um, called um, tooting and quacking. And it's a uh, piping. So tooting, quacking and piping are, are the three words um, that describe it. And they start to make this noise. So when the new queen emerges from her cell, basically she has to fight the old queen. And that decides who gets to own the beehive and who has to go away and build a new hive somewhere else and take some of the bees with them from the colony. And they make just this crazy sound. It sounds almost like a bird rather than a bee. So it's just all of these crazy visual things that they're doing, the sound things that they're doing, the ways that their eyes work to be able to tell where the sun is so they can locate their beehive when they're trying to get back to it. It's just unbelievable. And it's just, you know, that's what really got me uh, so excited about beekeeping. It's like, oh, I want to be able to, you know, click into this crazy system that the bees have where they understand all of these things, they find the way, their way around the world in such creative ways and be able to then measure that and help the beekeepers work with the existing system in order to improve their
0: operation. It's fascinating, it's fascinating. And I was gonna go down the angle of bee twerking, but it sounds like <laughs> there's a bit of bee ufc in there as well, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And I can see the passion there, which is awesome. And it's so critical to have that as a startup founder, right? Absolutely. Can you tell us about the Apis Protect business today? What's the elevator pitch, right? What's the, you know, and maybe the State of the Union as well?
1: <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. So um, I co-founded Apis Protect back in 2017. So we've been out there working with with beekeepers now for almost four years. And really what we found to be the most impactful thing that we can do with this kind of technology is to help beekeepers reduce losses and increase productivity in their operations. So uh, the beekeepers that we work with um, primarily at the moment in Apis Protect are pollination beekeepers and and also honey producers, but really it's the pollination beekeepers that we kind of designed our original product for. And it's all about getting technology into beehives and using that technology to help beekeepers identify where in their operation uh, they should use their materials, their labor and their transport most effectively. So basically sensors out into the beehives collect data data tell beekeepers okay here's a hive that's 200 miles in one direction that needs your attention right now and here's a hive 200 miles in another direction that doesn't need your attention so don't waste your time don't waste your resources out there
2: and can i ask just out of curiosity how big is the market in the sense of like beekeepers i know pete has family members and he's talked about it before but i know very little about beekeeping
1: yeah, it's it's a pretty significant market. I know that when you're when you're, I guess, not involved in the business of beekeeping, it kind of just happens around you and and, and lots of people are, are unaware of it. But it's a it's a huge industry. So the, the honey industry globally is valued at about three billion dollars. The pollination industry right now is valued at about one billion dollars, but it is growing pretty rapidly. That's that's the really new and the emerging part of the the beekeeping business. And just a bit of context around that the almond pollination event in California, because that's really the area that created the pollination industry. Industry. So there are, so in California, they produce about 80% of the almonds in the world. And there's kind of a, I think, a roughly five county area in California where all of those almonds are produced. There's about 1.3 million acres of almonds there. And in order for those trees to produce any almonds at all, they need to put two beehives into every acre. So that's two beehives into every acre, which is 2.6 million beehives. And there are only about 2 million beehives in the commercial beekeeping industry in the USA. So you can see there that, that, you know, the reason why this pollination event in almonds has, has grown so rapidly, it's become such a lucrative thing for beekeepers because even if they successfully deliver every single beehive to almonds, which is a very difficult thing to do, there's 600,000 hive shortfall. So that leads to, you know, beekeepers are paid upwards of $200 per beehive just to deliver their hives to California for two weeks, which is, you know, that that's almost, you know, double the honey revenue that you can get from a single beehive in a year.
0: It's amazing. And I saw in the CNN piece that they did on Apis Protect, a reference to $181 billion of agriculture, more or less, revenue per year that is dependent upon pollination, right? So there's a much bigger thing at play here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 amount of pollination that today is captured, as in is paid for by growers, is, you know... A- a fraction of the value that pollination actually does create for those farmers. And uh, what we're seeing as well at the moment is the awareness of pollination and the importance of pollination um, is spreading into other sectors. So you've got the almond guys who know all about it because of how fundamentally important honeybees specifically are biologically to, to almonds. But then when you go into other crops, so when you think about crops that aren't specifically honeybee dependent, as in they will create their fruit, without a honeybee, for example, strawberries. So a strawberry plant will produce strawberries if it's not pollinated by a honeybee. But if you introduce honeybee pollination to a strawberry farm, you can increase the value of that crop by, I think it's about, it's the guts of 80% over polytunnel crops. And then it's about 50% over open field. Strawberries. So, you, you know, we're seeing this awareness moving into other grower sectors where, you know, if you want to really level up your operation, if you want to dramatically increase the revenue from your farm without having to increase the size or change the crops that you're growing, you're talking about getting your crops to be more effectively pollinated. And, you know, that can be really easily achieved using just putting honeybee hives into your farm. You know, and there's other crops as well that it has a huge impact on and it gets really interesting when you get into the biology of it. For example, uh, pickles and cucumbers. One of the biggest deciders in, you know, the, the value of a, a pickle farm or a, a gherkin firm is how straight their cucumbers grow. And what decides whether or not a cucumber has a bend in it is how effectively the flower is pollinated. So if you if you pollinate that flower really thoroughly, you're going to get a dead straight cucumber. If it's not completely pollinated, it's going to bend. And if it's bent, then you can't put it into a jar because it's not straight. It, you know, you'll fit less pickles into the jar. You know, you, uh-huh. you start to think about these really oh. tiny things that can completely change <laughs> how much money you get for a crop. And a huge number of them are linked back to pollination.
0: All right, you're doing well here Fiona because I love almonds, I love avocados, I know that are yep. important as well and pickles. I've been yeah. my wife got me a pickle jar a few years ago and I haven't been able to use it because I haven't been able to find the proper organic cucumbers to make pickles with. But now, now I feel a bit more educated to go out and and renew that determination to get it done.
1: Oh, yeah, I was just going to mention that. I mean, like when we get into the crops that are dependent on pollinators and particularly bee pollination, it is a lot of the most nutritious, you know, uh, dense calorie and nutrition dense foods in our diet. You know, you're talking about nuts, you're talking about fruit, you know, uh, blueberries, cranberries, like that, avocado. So, you know, I think I've mentioned before, I'm a millennial, so I think almost all of my diet (laughs) is dependent on bee foods. (laughs) You know, my avocado. No, I'm with you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. And and the the, the towns family honey, which I'll talk about in a minute, that's gone. It it's it's all gone. I don't have any of that left, but I do have plenty of almonds and avocado in the in the house. I'm thinking about the business as it is today. Right, Apis Protect the product is looking after 20 million bees. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's about correct. It's, it's actually increased a bit since then, but I don't want to try and <laughs> do the maths in my head. So, you know, we're, we're very proud that we've monitored beehives primarily in, in North America, but also here in Europe. So in Ireland and in the UK and in South Africa as well, which was a, a really interesting uh, project that we worked on a few years ago. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Just thinking about the experience you've had to date so far that it was basically after eight years in a university setting, it was kind of boom, right into life as a startup founder right? What, what were some of the early lessons on startup life? And it's such a, that being such a massive transition from (laughs) academia into startup world.
1: Yeah, it's, it was, I think I would say it was a huge culture change in some sections. And then at the same time, it wasn't in a lot of other ways. So I think some of the huge similarities between a PhD and being an entrepreneur is that you're doing something that you care about so much that you or you, what you're working on is something you want to do so much. You don't really care if you get paid right now or not. That's absolutely the same. You have to be really okay. passionate to do a PhD, have to be really passionate to, to be an entrepreneur. So that's, that's certainly something that that always struck me from like day one at APIS Protect. But then at the on, on the other side, you know, I think I, I spent the first year of APIS Protect learning. Nobody wants to hear everything about what you're doing. You know, I was so used to, I was writing my thesis and writing the business plan for APIS Protect, um, you know, within about a couple of months of each other. And, you know, with your thesis, it's like, you know, I want to write a 200 page document about, you know, this little thing that I did. And um, then you're writing the business plan and somebody's like, Fiona, you just wrote like four pages on nothing and I don't want to read this you know Put it, one yeah. bullet point, please. I, I might pay attention to one bullet point. So trying to be concise. And then also the, the transition from talking about technology and the technical aspects of what we do to the, the business side of what we do. So obviously coming from a technical background, there was a big learning curve for me there about business models and you know revenue and even just things like the what's a profit and loss account and stuff like that. But also yeah. that the most important thing is the problem that you're solving rather than how you're solving it. Everybody's going to assume you're the engineer with a PhD, you know how to solve the problem. It's evaluating whether or not you've got a problem worth solving, whether it's you know significant and valuable enough to solve.
0: This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, demystifying fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. Pat Fintech enable financial services professionals to transform their capabilities into the digital age with dedicated virtual training programs geared towards those that can develop, deliver, and monitor optimally customized user experiences balanced by appropriate governance, control, and oversight. To learn more about Pat Fintech, go to moneyneversleeps.ie slash P-A-T Fintech.
2: And I was, I was going to ask, was it difficult then, I suppose, in terms of you talked about trying to condense it into something for people to understand, especially when you're going to raise money. It's it's incredibly niche, but obviously, you haven't talked to you now. I understand obviously the market and the opportunity, but at the same time, I'm sure there were a lot of people you talked to who couldn't get their kind of head around it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it is, it's a difficult little um, niche to be in, in that everybody loves bees and everybody gets excited about bees, but it's sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge to be taken seriously because like that people aren't aware of how big of an industry there already is, how the industry is going to continue to grow and how fundamentally important it is. So that is something that I always have to to pay a good bit of attention to when I'm doing things like pitch decks and stuff like that is getting the size of this opportunity across very early on. And that, yes, it's fantastic that we have all, of these you know sustainability impacts and like you know it's it's very good for biodiversity and you know access to pollinators and supporting the food system and stuff like that and that's all great but there is a, a proper viable business opportunity we're not just taking the CSR boxes if you get what I mean so th- that is really important and you know having like that having the dynamics of the almond industry ready to go in my head all the time, that's really important because people kind of sit back and go, oh, wow. You know, when you start multiplying all those numbers together, it becomes, oh, yes, that that's very serious. And that's just one thing that they do in the year. You know, that's literally, that's February. What can they do for the rest of the year?
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I get that. and And, you know, when you're talking about pitch decks and you're talking about trying to be concise and get into one bullet and it just reminds me very much of what happened about five years ago maybe four years ago in blockchain technology where every single pitch deck led with hey we're blockchain for this we're blockchain for that blockchain for bees i'm sure there was one of them you know and oh, we, we
1: have been asked can you get blockchain in there of course yeah. of course it's, you, the, it's the last you know, it's the only buzzword we're missing i think
0: <laughs> i know i even you <laughs> like the, there's uh, the, the place where I get my coffee, Moyi Coffee. They're wonderful. It's fair trade Coffee. They originally started with a blockchain hook on their packaging and on their story. And then they were kind of like, well, you know what? We probably don't need this anymore. And most people are, don't know what it means. So let's just pull it out of there. But definitely learn that lesson the hard way with working a whole bunch of startups where it was just, okay, we're AI for this. We're machine learning for that. I'm like, no, no, no. What's the problem you're solving? Just like you said, what's your value proposition? All right? So, yeah, kind of I, I can I could feel that pain in coming out of you know the four pages or the two hundred pages. How did that work, right? With investors like Atlantic Bridge and Finisterre in terms of converting your academic mind already en route to becoming that business mind, so passionate about what you do and then pitching it as an investment? worth making for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was that was like that a serious <laughs> transition to, to make. But I think what, what was really useful for me or what um, helped me an awful lot was getting involved like that in there's recent graduate, you know, entrepreneurship program in UCC that I took part in. So I, just as I finished up my PhD, I joined it. It's called the Ignite program. And really that was specifically designed for, look, any recent graduate is not going to have the entire skill set for entrepreneurship, but they're also probably the best potential entrepreneurs that we have because they're young and they're excited and they've got great ideas and they're you know financially and you know socially independent enough to go off and do something crazy for a couple of years so Uh, I joined the Ignite program and that was really good. I spent the first year, so kind of 2017 into 2018, getting the opportunity to learn about things like the business model canvas and, you know, the the whole focus on stop talking about the solution, Fiona, start talking about the problem, understand the problem, talk to a pile of customers, find loads of beekeepers to talk to and, you know, get them excited about the product, understand what they want out of a product, because that was another really important learning point. Like I'd spent a lot of time during my PhD trying to solve very complicated beehive problems. Like, can we detect these really specific diseases that are really like scientifically and academically interesting? Whereas when you talk to beekeepers and you say, look, you know, what's the biggest problem that you want to solve? And they say, I, I have way too many beehives that starve to death. And I'm I'm are like, oh, that's a really easy problem to solve. So, you know, we don't need to spend three years developing an algorithm to be able to detect this crazy disease because they actually only lose like one beehive out of 10,000 to that. They lose, you know, 5% or something like that of their beehives to a really straightforward problem like starvation. And it's like, okay, solve that. That's way more financially important to a beekeeper. So learning how to develop a business like that in, in kind of a structured environment was fantastic. And then just as I was like coming to the end of Ignite, uh, I was starting to talk to the investors and like that, I think, you know, actually talking to the investors, getting in front of them, understanding what, what, they think is important. Uh, that was that was a really good way as well to kind of develop out the idea and understand w- what the the trajectory could be like. Because they gave us you know fantastic introductions to you know even more beekeepers, other ag tech companies that had succeeded. People are used to selling to farmers. You know, uh, farmers are a very niche and specific um, set of people to try and, and sell to and get excited about a product. It's not. Um, as straightforward as coming up to them and saying, look, if you invest in this technology, it's going to create this much value. Any B2B proposition is, look, I'm going to charge you X and you're going to receive three X at the end of the year. Whereas in in agriculture and for farmers, you know, investing X is often gambling their entire year's margin, you know, or it could be. And uh, it's a much trickier proposition. And they're very reluctant to, to put, that much of their operation at risk because with such a tight margin business that you know it's a big risk for them. So being able to understand how to introduce the technology to the market correctly as well is a fantastic thing to learn about.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And getting those reps with talking to investors can always be really helpful. Do you, How many investors do you think that you might have pitched to before you got the big two that you did with Atlantic Bridge and Finisterre? <laughs>
1: Oh, oh, that's a really hard number to try and uh, guess. I would say about about 10 or 15. I think, you know, yeah, yeah. One advantageous thing that we had, I guess, was that at that stage in Ireland, there was a very limited cohort of people who were interested in ag tech at all. It was kind of really just at the, we were right there at the start of the trying to push ag tech in a big way in Ireland. So um, while there were really interesting people coming on board, like Finister had just arrived in Ireland and stuff like that. It was great. It, it was really a limited group of people. And, you know, we kind of just found them all and went, hello, can we talk to you? And, you know, that, that, that went really well.
0: <laughs> was there anything that stood out with them that in terms of, you know, in early stage, startup founder always would love to be in a position of picking their investors rather than their investors picking them, right? Was there anything that stood out as being with either one of them that, okay, they are going to be really helpful in this space after the investment?
1: Yeah, I think that was something that we bore in mind completely when we were putting together around and considering what investors to go with you know every investor in our covert so we had you know five investors so co-led by finisterre and the atlantic bridge university fund so finisterre obviously brought a huge amount of ag tech experience like we knew at that stage our first market had to be america with that, that pollination industry so you know they had so many connections straight in there and then atlantic Bridge based in Ireland, have fantastic connections in the U.S., but also have great technology connections here in Ireland. So um, as we were bringing our product, so I had loads of experience of engineering, no experience whatsoever of manufacturing a product, certifying a product, all these kind of later stage things. So they they gave us uh, some great support around that, introductions to to help get that process done as efficiently and as cheaply as possible, which is still not very efficient, not very cheap, but at least not make giant mistakes. And we have the Yield Lab, who again are Ireland and the U.S. A uh, fantastic uh, specialized in ag tech, radical growth, uh, California based ag tech. So, again, both of them gave us fantastic introductions over in the US, and then Enterprise Ireland, who are you know the Irish. The excellent Irish fund, that's a a great thing to be able to access as an Irish company. So every single one of our investors, it obviously, it it started out with money and getting the money was very important, but way more important than the money uh, was the connections and the experience. Being able to build a board um, that had experience of growing an ag tech product, scaling an ag tech product like that, even, you know, being able to understand what we should be saying to our beekeepers like that. Our team is very academic. So sometimes we go off and we start building products. We rate the size of the colony. So one of the most important things to know at any given time is, is the size of a colony. And we had an algorithm that could calculate it to like 97 or 98% size uh, versus as big as a beehive can get. And, uh, you know, one piece of input that we got from the investors is, don't do that because you'll have beekeepers who are you know killing a ninety seven percent hive and keeping a ninety eight percent hive when you know that's not really a material difference for their beehives you know you need uh-huh. to you're making it too advanced you should dial it down and give it a nine out of ten rating and then you won't have people you know making crazy decisions based on one or two percent. So that's just kind of an, an example uh, of a really important piece of feedback that you can get from having a really good investor cohort. So nobody who has invested in APIs protect has just invested money. And I think that that was absolutely the right decision for us.
0: It, this all, all just sounds like it's, well, it's early days, obviously. You're four years in, right? To what's going to be hopefully a, a long lifetime of a business. But it sounds like it's all happened the way that it should so far. Is that a... <laughs> <laughs> the way you'd hope. Yeah, well, in think... the way that you would hope. <laughs> yeah, no, because no. And just just to back that up for a second, just to back that up for a second, It's like, well, yeah, you want to be able to pick your investors. You want to be able to put investors on your board that are actually going to be able to help and have strong connections in the market that you want to go into and that can actually offer counsel and advice and connectivity to your core value proposition and what sits behind that in terms of your infrastructure. It sounds like you've done all of that right is what I'm saying
1: yeah yeah well I think that absolutely that that has gone really well I think you know no matter how well something goes you're always going to look back and go geez if I'd known that I could have shortcutted a circuit a certain amount of things or I could have spent less money learning uh, something but I think definitely so far we're on track and (laughs) you know I'm really pleased with how it's worked out and I think uh, it was a combination of well uh, yeah, absolutely. We have a, a very good product. It's a very good opportunity. We were kind of the, the right guys to go after it, as in had been working in the area since the very early days of bee monitoring technology being a concept. So I think we were in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. And um, it all just came together really well. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. And and talking about selling into the United States, right? My reference point before I actually looked more into the industrial side of, of beekeeping and pollination it was my Uncle Doug, right? Shout out to Uncle Doug. I don't think he listens to this podcast, but you know, <laughs> him and his wife, Kate, they've retired and moved away from the home where they raised their kids and they ended up with a, a, another place closer to the sea in Massachusetts. And for as long as I remember, Doug did the beekeeping and he took over the hives when my grandfather passed away in 1983, I think. And he just picked it up and he started going with it. And it might've been 10, 15 hives that he looked after and it's house in Bedford, Massachusetts and did the seasonal honeymaking, you know, always had interesting candles, arts and crafts with the beeswax, everything, and sold it to one of the local shops. So when I first heard about Apis Protect, I'm thinking about you selling to my Uncle Doug, right? And I'm like, well, he's a hobbyist. You must have to sell to a lot of them. And, you know, stupid me, Then, then doing a bit of research and figuring this out and saying, okay, now the... The big, you know, industrial bee keeping farms, as we call them, or as I'm gonna call them, five hundred up to seventy thousand colonies that they're looking after, right? Those are big, big industrial operations. What's been your approach to B2B sales?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. So absolutely, the dynamics between these very small beekeepers and these huge beekeepers, are they're completely different. So we do have two products. We have one product uh, for hobbyists that's actually only available in Ireland right now. So we do have like that, the product for people who are just, you know, we love our bees and we want to know what's happening in them. And I want to be able to, you know, know if it's been blown over out in the distance. And I want to be able to just open up my phone and say, oh, look, you know, my beehives are happy today or my beehives aren't so happy today. So I might go out to them tomorrow. So that technology is available in Ireland. And that's been selling really well. So we're very excited about that. And then when it comes to the commercial guys, so our, our commercial technology, which is only available in the US, it, it, it is a very different proposition. It's all about what does this deliver for your operation? So the, the, the two things that we know beekeepers in the US are, are trying to achieve. So they're trying to deliver more beehives They're turning up at the moment with, say, 5,000 beehives to almond pollination. They know if they could bring 10,000 beehives to almond pollination, there's a demand there for them or to, to other pollination events as well and produce more honey. So basically, they know they want to maximize the number of beehives that their operation can maintain. And they're very, very worried about labor. So I think like every single farmer in the US, labor is their uh, biggest cost. Beekeeping is a really, really labor intensive business. Uh, One of the things a beekeeper mentioned to me uh, a couple of months ago that kind of explained this concept in my head really well is he said, I wish I was a rancher because I could just drive down the road and I could look in the field and I could tell if all of my cows were dead uh, because they'd all be lying on the ground. You can't tell what's going on inside in the beehive until you drive out to the beehive, put on your suit, open the box, spend, you know, five or 10 minutes rummaging around inside that box with thousands of insects trying to kill you and looking using quite a specific skill set that's very difficult to hire as well, using that skill set to understand what's happening and say, right, okay, it's all right. So basically you could have spent 20 or $30 in labor just to find out that you didn't need to do anything and you didn't need to spend any money on your labor. Like that's that's the where they're starting from so beekeepers right now you know without technology what they do is they have teams of workers who just drive around they drive around in loops opening beehives going right you know that didn't need any work about 20 percent of the time uh, a beehive that they open actually needs some kind of attention um so 80 percent of the labor costs in any given beekeeping operation are essentially wasted and what we have focused on at apis protect is identifying opportunities to not do labor. So essentially say, look, there's there's a yard out there that's got no problems at all. Don't send anybody there. Or there's a yard here that has some problems, but it's these 10 beehives out of the 50 beehives. So you only need to open those 10 beehives right now. So for beekeepers, what we focused on is proving out the aspects of our technology that can help them, first of all, reduce their labor bill. And then secondly, take advantage of that reduced labor requirement to increase the average colony size in their operation. So basically, because you only need to look at 20% of the beehives, you can spend twice as much time on those 20% of the beehives and your labor bill is still way lower than it used to be. And those beehives are going to be much bigger. You're going to lose a lot less beehives. Right now, beekeepers are losing about 40% or up to 40% of their colonies every year. So what we can do is help them dramatically reduce that number. So um, basically you've got more beehives surviving through the winter months. You've got more beehives available to go into almond pollination. The average size of those beehives is larger at the average size of the beehives is what decides the amount of money that they get paid for those beehives in pollination. So basically you're going to spend less money on your beehives and those beehives are going to earn you more money when they get out into the field. So that's that's the, the business proposition.
0: I love it. I love it. And I was talking to a startup founder today, very, very early stage who I'd been mentoring for the last, I don't know, three months. And we had been working really hard on his pitch around reduction in cost of his customers, right? And they need to spend less time doing this. And because who he was selling to and his targets, his target personas of who he wanted to reach out to, to sell to, were people that that's what they were concerned about, the cost, right? They weren't really thinking revenue. And he had a very interesting conversation with another mentor just late last week who said, listen, you know what? I kind of like where you're going with this, but you really got to focus more on the money making side, right? What is the revenue? What is the lifetime value? I don't even want to get into the unit economics of bees, right? Lifetime value and, and client acquisition costs for bees. But when you're selling to hobbyists, absolutely, it's less time you know, you're going to actually be able to focus on what really matters. Right. But when it's a big commercial operation, absolutely. You know, it's spend less, but make more and make much, much more. Right. Is there kind of a, you know, on a a 60, 40, 70, 30 split, when you pitch, how much of that pitch is weighted towards make more versus spend less?
1: That's, that's a really good question. Yeah, absolutely. I think right now we focus, I guess, 70-30, so 70% on cost reduction and 30% on, on revenue generation. Because I think, like I mentioned earlier, you know, these are farmers that we're selling to very tight margin business. They're they're very reluctant to take a gamble on a new technology. So we're trying to take it in a very kind of step-by-step manner. So one thing that we we're doing to kind of smooth out or, or you know, kind of alleviate some of the stress about the idea of adopting uh, this new technology is in the first year that we work with a beekeeper they can only adopt up to 200 beehives of, of our technology which sounds like a lot but you know when you're in an operation with 10-20,000 beehives that's tiny so it's, it's a step-by-step approach and what we want to do, or one of the most highest priority things for us at APIS Protect is to demonstrate to them during that period that this technology works, that this technology is worth investing in for you. And so the first thing we concentrate on delivering is the cost reduction, because that's, you know, that's something you see immediately. You're not waiting a year for, you know, your next pollination event when, oh, your hives are bigger, so you get more revenue. You know, if you're, if you, you know, normally inspect a beehive twice a month and suddenly you only need to inspect a beehive once a month, that's an instantaneous measurable return on your investment in the technology. Um, So right now, because like that, we're at the early stages of the company, we're all about getting new beekeepers on board. We're focusing a lot more on, look, you know, you're going to spend X dollars a month on our technology. We're going to prove, we're going to eliminate one inspection and you'll have already made the cost of the Technology back, and then everything else you get on top of that is gravy, and that's kind of, you know, that that helps an awful lot in getting people excited about adopting a new technology. Um, and I think, in particular, I think beekeepers are on the extreme end of, of this kind of technology reluctance because if you're talking to, say, I don't know, uh, someone who grows corn or someone who like that c- cattle farming, I know, you know, being in Ireland, all of the advances around uh, dairy production and stuff like that, they're not used to going step by step with technology. Beekeeping, we're taking it from essentially right now beekeeping works almost the same way as it does as it did back in the middle ages before technology the last big advancement in beekeeping technology was the invention of the forklift to move more than one beehive at a time wow.
2: you know that's wow. it there's no software there's no technology I was wondering <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was wondering as you've been going through the story like it seems like an industry that's very light and kind of technology advances clearly <laughs>
0: Yeah, they, 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 there's another one here. But you go ahead first, and then I'll come back to this.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, right now, like that. Like I said, forklift is the most advanced piece of technology in most beekeeping operations. A lot, even uh, some of the most advanced oper And now, you know, they're they're obviously they're delivering their fantastic businesses. So not not disparaging them on the basis that they don't use technology, but even just tracking what's going on inside in their beehives, they use whiteboards inside in their office you know there's um so little time you know so much of their time is taken up by inspect feed get out there physically work with the beehives they don't have time to stop and you know sit down and put their information into an Excel sheet because before they're even done filling out an Excel sheet, the information is going to have changed. So it's on a whiteboard, people are walking in, walking out of the office all the time, you know, right. Yeah, I was in year at six and it's fine. I was in year at seven and it's not fine, you know. So they're trying to constantly track this information really, really quickly. And that's where our technology comes in because our machine learning can produce these reports at any time uh, very, very quickly. So you're not constantly trying to input data and track data and then change the way that you're tracking data because last month you were doing something different and now you're trying something something completely different again so you're going to have to rework your excel sheet um, our software it takes care of, of a lot of that work for them.
0: Wow it, it it why I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face is that Owen we found an intersection between fintech and ag tech right here in that the problem that a lot of fintech providers are looking to solve is the problem that you're you're nailing right here which is that The incumbents just have a a lack of a grasp of technology. And it's not entirely their fault. It's because of the margins in the business, right? And you, you just don't have time with what you're looking after to be able to put in place these fast, agile technology projects to improve things. So you need someone else to do that for you. Right. And I think that's where we're coming in here. This is so cool. I just wish my uncle Doug was on for this, but I'm going to make him listen.
2: Can I ask Fiona, <laughs> Do, uh I'd be keen to understand your, I suppose, your personal journey in terms of going from academia into starting a business, how you've grown your own skills and how that's all changed over the last number of years as you've tried to build the business.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my personal skill set has changed uh, completely. So I think probably the biggest change for me uh, has been public speaking and communication. So at the start of Apus Protect so back in 2017 when I was trying to join that that incubator I talked about that Ignite you had to give a I think like a 2 minute pitch to like two of the people involved in in Ignite and I spent about a month freaking out about that and i I don't remember what was in that deck at all because my brain was just going wow wow <laughs> the entire time I was talking I was just unable to speak in front of people like I could if, if I was talking in front of one person and I thought of it as a presentation I would just clam up so I went pretty quickly from there to like pitching in front of like 600 people in India within about 12 months. So yeah, just kind of baptism of fire when it comes to public speaking. And then also, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that the, the the coming out of, you know, trying to be an expert in a teeny, teeny, tiny, really specific area of, you know, sensor technology and signal processing for honeybees, which is like you know a tiny little specific area to being a CEO where your entire job is to be responsible for and understand everything that's going on. So, you know, in the space of one day, you talk to the data science guys and the engineers and the person who's trying to post things around the world with DHL and your accountant and your solicitor. I found that that was a a huge transition and, you know, learn an awful lot about so many different topics. I often say I learn more every six months at APIS Protect and it's been every single, any single six month period in APIS Protect. I learned more in six months than I did in eight years at university, just because that's the nature of the job. You have to understand everything that's going on yeah. because at the end of the day, you're responsible for everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically it's going from the, the very, very narrow to the unbelievably broad, I think is is the biggest change.
0: And, and what about building the team? What approach did you take to that?
1: Yeah, that that again was something that was completely new to me. So what we focused on is uh, getting people into the team that are really, really excited and passionate about what they do and ex- excited and passionate about what we're doing as well. We have uh, engineers, software developers, data scientists, biologists, marketing people, salespeople, <laughs> business development people, and everybody's an expert at what they do, but are also very, very passionate about our goal of improving bee welfare improving food production for humankind i think we've got the the Probably the biggest proportion of vegans and vegetarians in any startup team. All of our Christmas parties <laughs> have to be at vegan-friendly uh, locations. So I think that 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 was really important to us was that you know that that additional passion is is really important for you know at the end of the day you're in a startup it's 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 harder work <laughs> than anywhere else. It's pulling out all the stops uh, when you've sent out a pile of devices and suddenly you realize that oh before they go into the post we have to solder one piece onto every single one of them <laughs> or something like that. And everybody on the team. So you've got software developers soldering. You've got biologists using screwdrivers and stuff like that. So it's it's really that, that extra passion within the team is really important to actually just ultimately deliver on what you're doing. And I think as well, uh, another thing that we've focused on in kind of a related area is everybody on the team is involved in the real world consequences of the product that they're developing, You know the business that they're developing. So everybody goes into the field, everybody gets hands on with the beekeeping operation and installs the technology, uses the technology, because there's a big difference between sitting in a lab or sitting in an office designing something. And the reality of it's going to go out into these really unbelievably, and you don't appreciate how busy they are until you're standing there and there's people running everywhere and there's bees running everywhere. It's it's busy. It's messy. It's very, very difficult to keep track of things. There's going to be like that forklifts driving over your hardware and it needs to be able to survive that. They're going to be dropped in puddles. They're going to be flung in the corner while somebody's doing another job. And, you know, without the the practical understanding of what that's like, I don't think it's possible to design a product and to build a product that works out there. I think a really good example is we've got a labeling system. So the, the sensor unit is installed in the roof of the beehive, which obviously is the first thing that's taken off anytime somebody's working on the beehive. And in the past, it doesn't matter if the roofs gets fopped around between the beehives. You know, you're going to rip the roofs off 10 beehives and do a pile of work and then put them all back on. Uh, but because our sensors are learning about specific colonies of bees the roof has to go back on the same beehive it came off so we designed a labeling system with numbers colors and shapes on it to try and make it really really obvious from far away okay this box has a color shape number and this roof has a color shape number so you put them back together naturally and um we were like, that's completely foolproof. And then we went, our own team went out into the field and we found several times we ourselves weren't putting the back in the right place. So it's like, how can we expect our customers to do it when we can't even do it in the real world? So, you know, being able to push your product all the way to where it needs to be to actually survive in the real world, that the practical experience is is completely necessary.
0: Totally. Yeah. And there's so many crossover points here. It's absolutely ridiculous in terms of you know getting product into customers hands and getting that immediate feedback and whether that is an actual physical product that you're selling or it's something that you're putting on an app on a phone you know it's the same thing and and it, you just got to do that and put yourself in the customer's shoes right so that's yeah. awesome
1: we're big fans of the 8020 rule you know at 80 you have to give it to someone and let them break it don't waste don't do don't do the 20 until you know it's what you actually have to do <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah if you wait until you're bug free before you ship your first product You've waited too long.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. What's next? What's next for Apis Protect?
1: Yeah, we're we're at a really exciting point now at Apis Protect. So we launched our uh, product in the U.S. last October, I think. Uh, October, November. It's all a big blur to me at this point. We launched our product here in Ireland in January. So we're we're moving now to the scaling stage. You know, it's all about getting more beekeepers on board in the US, getting more beekeepers on board here in Ireland. We're going to be uh, moving into additional European countries over the next um, 12 months, which is really exciting as well to get more, more of these smaller artisan hobbyist beekeepers on board and getting like that a substantial footprint in the US. We're focusing right now on bringing about 20 beekeepers on board or between 10 and 20 beekeepers on board for uh, that pilot program that I mentioned earlier. So get ourselves into a number of operations, get established and really demonstrate the the value of the technology to those beekeepers and then like that scale up within those operations over a couple of years.
0: Very good. When we have these conversations Fiona, it's sometimes never clear when we we have a conversation with a startup founder from an industry that Owen and I just aren't familiar with, but we it's always awesome to get that connection point to really truly understand what you're doing. I don't think I could ever understand what you're doing from a technological perspective, but at least I can connect some dots but from the business challenge perspective that all startup founders have, right? So awesome to have this chat with you. Owen, do you want to do the honors with your final question?
2: Yes, I will, of course. And I I echo what Pete says. This has been one of the most informative uh, conversations I think we've had on the show in terms of understanding a, a market that I don't have any clue about. You know, I've only watched like B-movie with my kids a few weeks ago. So <laughs> I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind, you know. Yeah. I was like, I'm sure there'll be some reference. <laughs> uh, but yes, I would like to ask, what is it people wouldn't expect to know about you?
1: I think the one really, my always, it's always my my interesting fact about me in any kind of like that situation where you get asked, I know how to play the bagpipes, which is a completely oh. random Ooh. thing for <laughs> from court to be able to do. Uh, so yeah, my family is a big bagpipe family. And like that, I um, learned how to play them when I was
2: a child.
0: Well, it's really impressive. That's awesome. If you go telling that to the majority of Irish Americans, they'd think it's completely normal for an Irish person to know how to play bagpipes <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's commonly uh, yeah, then... confused that the, you know, the bagpiper at the Irish American wedding, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, let, let's not offend your customers though. So, <laughs> 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 but we'll leave it at that. Uh, Fiona, Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you.
2: Really enjoyed Um, it.
0: And really looking forward to tracking you guys and seeing you just knock the ball out of the park over and over again. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much, guys. It was great.
0: That does it for this week, folks. And thanks to Fiona for opening up her mind to help us figure out why she does what she does. Links are on our website at moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online and subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from CreateSound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm the founding partner at Norio Ventures. And I'm an early stage startup advisor and investor focused on fintech and digital assets. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a voicemail on moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See you.